Hello, hello there, lovely listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Dark and Devious. everybody it's good to have you uh be in your ears today whenever you're listening to us and if we're not in the ears uh we might be through a car radio oh, uh, yeah. speaker um you know all the ways that you can hear our lovely voices it is good to be back we don't have any new countries to welcome into the mix lately but um we do have a special milestone here i want to first acknowledge that this last week was patrick's birthday so wish him a happy birthday on whatever platform whether you're on the facebook or instagram send him some happy birthday wishes and if you can find my personal on instagram I ch- I'm going to leave that up for you to, to do, <laughs> oh, some, do some research, do some digging on the that. The challenge has been thrown down. And also, all gifts can be sent to... <laughs> we, we, haven't, we need a P.O. box sent for our, or set up for our our podcast. That would be perfect. Mm-hmm. Podcast slash um, <laughs> Patrick's gifts for his birthday. Well, um, yeah, thank you, Chris. Uh, my birthday was very chill. Um we went and we saw the movie Old, which was uh, its premiere day. It's an M. Night Shyamalan movie. Oh, yes. I was hearing about that. Uh, I, I saw the preview for it. It looks really, really interesting. Well, I Did it live up to the, the trailers? I, I really liked it. Um, the story and the plot line, we both agreed that that was really good. Uh, especially for M. Night Shyamalan, because with his movies, you never really know what you're getting. Yeah, I feel like people either really like what he has to offer, or they really don't like what he has to offer. <laughs> I'm one of the ones that really do. Oh, good. Um, my my thing with this movie, though, was, you know, all actors have to start somewhere. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> are some of them starting out in this film perhaps and like, it's noticeable perhaps <laughs> um but yeah it was other than acting flaws it was okay i'd, I'd watch it again yeah because it's it's isn't it the plot is it's like a fam like, or like it's a family vacation and they're on this beach and then all of a sudden well i guess i don't know how much do i want to give away um, i mean you can so basically, it's his family, and there's also some other people uh, that go to this resort, and there's like this secret beach that they tell like their favorite guests about, and oh, only their favorites. Oh, interesting. So this small group of people wind up on this beach, and then weird stuff just starts to happen, and then they eventually figure out that for every 30 minutes, that's one year of their life, and everyone just starts getting old. Oh, so it's a weird, like, time-space 
continuum kind of storyline. Right. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Like, it would fit right in there with, like, Bermuda Triangle type stuff. Oh, okay. All right. I, I might be tempted to see that. It has been quite a long time since I've actually sat down in a movie theater and watched a movie, so... I'll add that to my potential. Had you seen a movie in a theater recently? Other yeah. Than... Um, what did we see? So, oh, we saw um, The Forever Purge. Okay. I like The Purge movies. Right. I know they can be problematic, but... Um... It actually, it sounds like a movie about someone just, like, getting rid of all their excess clutter. Marie Kondo. Starring Marie Kondo in The Forever Purge. (laughs) Um, We actually saw that like maybe three weeks ago. Um, And then my husband went by himself and saw the new G.I. Joe Snake Eyes. Okay. So you've been getting back into the movie theaters. Yeah, like, especially right now, like, there's a a big heat wave of it. If, I mean, anyone in North America knows that North America is like... Suffering. On, Even Canada has triple places. digits. It's yeah. like Well, lately we've been experiencing some of the, the smoke from the wildfires happening in Canada and that's I mean, I know that's like the like a huge story in Canada right now and the heat is not helping and the Pacific Northwest, which is usually pretty mild just in general, has been getting record heat and We've had like, almost no rain here. And meanwhile, other places in the world are like Belgium and Germany and parts of China are getting floods. So it's just like all all the water is in the wrong places right now. Like, yeah, we need it and we need it over here. Yes, we do. It's wacky. Yeah. So to beat the heat, we've been getting back into our 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 movie theater game. We like to go see movies. It's it's fun. Nice. I I actually studied film, so I if anybody should be watching movies, it should be me. I always feel guilty when I'm not up to date on 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 what the the movies are right now, but I've also been stocking up on some classic movies I've been buying. So, I might I might have to revisit some of those old favorites. That's always fun to yeah. do. Um, do we have any other housekeeping bits uh, here? I do. So last week, um, we brought up the fact that like, you know, we like feedback, we like suggestions. Yes. You actually and, caught yourself. Right. And we also want like corrections. And our very first correction comes from yours truly <laughs> on my own story. Because as I was listening to episode twenty. Wow, was that? Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, the life and death of Marilyn Monroe. I mentioned how there wasn't really an affair between JFK and that they only interacted like the one time at his birthday party. Mm-hmm. So the the truth the truthful part of that is like there was not a long term affair like everyone believes. Um there was potentially a short lived one. Uh, but it was just like a one night stand type of thing, if there was. So the, the a lot briefer interaction that kind of yes, sparked there, that. There were multiple like, you know, passings between mm. JFK and Marilyn. And they were seen in the same place at the same time. Um, but they were always like very like non-significant passings. However, she did have the affair with Bobby and... The media just 
took the few times she was seen with JFK, the fact that it was an affair with the Kennedys, mm-hmm. and they did what paparazzi does best, and they blew it out of the water. Um, well, and also it's and, like all all you need is that na- that last name Kennedy, and it's like it doesn't really matter which one. Yeah, it's like they all get kind of tied together. Yeah, so I said that like you know there was never anything where in fact there was it was just really really small and it got blown out of proportion so just wanted to let y'all know that if you were screaming at me like <laughs> like patrick you idiot like there was too i'm acknowledging yes there was but it's not the big grandiose right it's steamy affair that everyone thought there always was that makes sense it's funny because I, I feel like the the truth is always a, a lot less exciting than what people can cook up in their own mind. Yeah. That's just, uh, same same works with, uh, with horror, I feel like. Like, even if you can't see the monster in the, in the movie, uh, what your mind can come up with is oftentimes a lot scarier than any special effect. So, mm-hmm, that's for sure. Same idea. Yeah, so other than that, not much podcast news, Um, but just a reminder, send us your suggestions, send us your comments, questions. Yes, and uh, something that I know we talked about before, but we haven't mentioned in a while, is if you feel like sponsoring us, you can actually do that through anchor as well you can if you think if you're enjoying what you're listening to and want to toss us a couple bucks a month um every little dollar is appreciated and you can help support the content that you enjoy listening to that's very true and we would use the those donations to uh you know maybe get some better equipment Mm -hmm. so we'd sound crisper um invest in maybe some merch yes oh my gosh Believe me, the gears have been turning there uh, in my brain of things that I would like to see on a t-shirt or a hat or something. <laughs> so maybe there will be something to come. But anyway, uh, anything else you can think of before we get started with today's case? Um, no, I d- there is something I can think of, but I... Uh, I just started it, so I don't want to quite recommend it yet. It's a new... Oh, yes. It's a new series, uh, Dr. Death on Peacock. I listened to the podcast of it, and it covered... There's a few different seasons, and the season that the uh, dramatized show on Peacock, starring Alec Baldwin, (laughs) um, is about Dr. Dent from Daleks, Texas. And he... This I listened to it, so I know the whole story. I just don't know how the, the show is going to go. Oh, okay. That's why I'm not suggesting it yet. Um, but this doctor is a real-life person where in the early 2000s, he was purposely botching surgeries, leaving patients paralyzed. Oh. Um, as severe from, like, just, like, not being able to move, like, their fingers to, like, full... On paralysis. Full on paralysis oh. from the head down. He even did it to one of his best friends. Um, and he would also just do things of like leaving clamps in, like on the wrong nerves. So that this person would have chronic pain for the rest of their life. So he's just a real, real crappy human being. I could just imagine it's like 
hey, Bill, remember when you borrowed that book and then you never returned it to me? Well, now you're paralyzed yep. because I held the grudge. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, so it's the true story of Dr. Dunch uh, from Dallas, Texas. And I just started episode one literally half an hour ago. Um, <laughs> well, so now if any of our listeners are watching that then and want to discuss it with you, they can they can ask you what you think. Or... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Um, let's, with that being said, let's, let's get into it. All right, let's get into it. Okay, Chris, um, so you're up this week. and right. I am curious as to what you're going to cover. So I'm really, uh, excited to thank my coworker, Blake, for suggesting this one. Um, Blake is a, a pretty loyal listener to us. So shout out to him. Uh, so I, I told him I would thank him on air for that. And it actually was the perfect suggestion uh, because it's a topic that I've been curious about and I would I wanted to know more about. And here now I've had a chance to uh, really dive in. And I've it's such a big topic that I feel like even though I've got plenty to talk about, I feel like I only am scratching the surface and it really makes me want to know even more. Uh, so today we're going to talk about Phil Spector, who, uh, for those of you who don't know, where uh, it was a very, very famous music producer um, from the 60s, kind of all the way up to, he was even working in the early 2000s. And he also murdered someone. So this is uh, Phil Spector, the man behind the music and the murder. So chances are, if you've listened to music from the second half of the 20th century, you've heard something that has been produced or at least influenced by legendary music producer Phil Spector. Spector had an absolutely amazing ear for hit songs and produced some of the most memorable tunes for decades. But behind the scenes, he was oftentimes unstable and erratic. It is this side that led the multimillionaire to commit a horrible murder and, sheltered by his wealth and prominence, allowed him to evade justice for far too long. But who was this strange figure of music history and what led him to kill? We will look into both of these questions today as we discuss the wild rise and fall of Phil Spector. So is this one that you knew that you know anything about? I know, um, again, it's one of those things like I know the name. Yep. Um, I've I've listened to it on other podcasts, you know, but I I consume so much. <laughs> I know tidbits about so many little things. Yeah. Um, but I just think it's really cool that back to back without even telling each other we're covering you know hollywood right and fame so <laughs> right i know this is kind of uh you know if marilyn was kind of on one end of the of the spectrum where she kind of imploded on herself like this is a very explosive end, like the opposite end of the spectrum of fame where um i feel like success and um, just personal problems combined with mental health made a totally opposite kind of... Recipe for disaster? Yes, that works. Okay. That works. (laughs) 
So Harvey Philip Specter was born December 26th, 1939 in the Bronx, New York. And it's funny because a lot of times I see that it, sometimes people say that he was born in 1939. Some said that he was born in 1940, but I feel like the tallies were more so 1939, more reliable sources said that. So that's what we're going to go with. Okay. And he was born into a lower middle class family. Uh, apparently, he hated his first name and chose to go by Phil, which was his middle name, instead. His father, Benjamin, who was the son of Russian Jewish immigrants, was an iron worker. His mother, Bertha, was a seamstress and later a bookkeeper. As a boy, Phil was asthmatic and extremely sensitive to the sun. This no doubt contributed to his mother being overprotective and domineering. So you can just imagine, so he's got like kind of lower middle class parents and they're from like a, like a Eastern European Jewish family. You could just imagine the, the worrying, the, you know, the, the stereotypical like worrying mother about her precious son. Yeah. I mean, it's first generation. It's a child that has health problems. Right. And he was kind of just like awkward and, and, and kind of, kind of goofy looking his whole life. I think the only time that I feel like he kind of blended in was in his youth. Like he looked like a normal kid, kind of maybe a little out of proportion. Yeah. Maybe also especially pale. Yes. Oh yeah. Sun inversion. Probably stayed out of the sun a lot. He's very well known for having the, the sunglasses on all the time. <laughs> um, at the age of eight years old, he and his family suffered a major tragedy which was the suicide of his father caused by car exhaust. In the years following his father's tragic death, his family moved to Los Angeles in 1953. Specter went to Fairfax High School where his love for music grew in the wake of his grief and awkward teen stage. He was a gangly kid with a weak chin and a strong Bronx accent. So could you imagine like, okay, you're living in California now, the land of sun, like, okay, that you've already got that going against you because you're basically allergic to the sun. And then you also have this really strong Bronx accent. Like I could imagine that would be a little alienating. Throughout his life, he would always have a bit of an odd look to him and frequently sported wild hairstyles, especially as he got older. This is a point that he would obsess over the rest of his life. Having, like, wild hairstyles? Um, he was very, very particular about his hair. Mm. Like, he was kind of, like, to the point where he was obsessive about it. Which is really weird, because when you, if you were to Google search pictures of Phil Spector... There, he, his hairstyles go from everything from like the pretty tame, like typical 50s look to kind of like this afro looking look. Uh, and then also like this kind of flowing, like curly hairstyle. Um, I think he was also really afraid of, I can see the smile on your face. You must be seeing some I, of the pictures well, I'm talking about. I am. And for one, like, 
I I remember this case so much more now seeing mm-hmm. this. But man, this this fro he's got going on. The fro on. is uh out of control. I was gonna say that he and I were like one and the same when it comes to like obsessing over your hair because like <laughs> I am very particular. Your hair is hair. always on point. I have for all of our listeners, you should know Patrick's hair is always on point. Well, thank you. I, <laughs> I mean, it's because I'm obsessed. But, you know, no, Phil and I are nothing, no. no, nothing the same when it comes to our love of our own hair. I think one of the things that he feared a lot was losing his hair. Because he was already kind of goofy looking, and then to be balding on top of it was just something that was just probably a point of pride that he didn't want to have to deal with. And later in life, he would wear hair pieces and wigs. To, and so sometimes he would look completely different from like one year to the next because it would just be to- a totally different hair piece. I found the perfect image to share when I posted about this. Oh, yeah? Because it's like him throughout the years. From oh, like awesome. When he's young and like kind of creepy looking but like kind of attractive <laughs> at the same time and then it goes through like the 60s and 70s and 80s and then this is wild like i'm not even gonna say i'll show you yes but um, yeah but let's see here oh my like those goodness. last two those well like the last basically the last five honestly <laughs> It's crazy. Well, I, I can't wait for you to share that with the listeners oh. after we post that. So, all the more reason to check out our social media, which is, what again, Patrick? Instagram and Facebook, Dark and Devious Podcast. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Oh, my gosh. I cannot wait to, to see what people think of that, because it is a wild, a wild trip through hairstyle history there. So, back to film. His, his family life through his teens seemed to be rather disastrous, actually. Uh, his mother often looked down on any of Phil's female friends who got close to him, and she often blatantly blamed him for his father's death, telling him that he was a bad child and that's what drove his father to suicide. So there was another, and another thing that, that his mother would do if like, so say he went over to some girlfriend's house, she would call like every 15 minutes and, and like basically try to get him to come home. So it's just like, wow, mom, talk about being a major, uh, like block to any kind of dating situation or even just any girls that you want to be friends with, like. That is absolutely insane. But then to go to the other side of things and then be like, there's a story of her chasing him with a knife, saying saying that it was his fault that his dad committed suicide because he was a bad kid. I'm like, this is just like the mom from hell. <laughs> but also, like, this also screams to me like someone with undiagnosed... Something. Mental illness. Yeah. I mean... Um, But despite this rocky side of his family life, he had a fun and ingratiating side when he felt like turning it on. He learned to play the guitar and began writing songs. Uh, He also played the French horn in the school band 
and began channeling his musical leadership. It is at this juncture in his life that he joined up with fellow classmates Marshall Lieb, Harvey Goldstein, and Annette Kleinbard. Phil and his three friends formed the group The Teddy Bears. It's, it's which is kind of like an adorable name, but also for like a pop group of, uh, of like high schoolers. It just seems, it seems kind of lame. Like What year is this though? Is it, but this is like 19, the late fifties, 1958 was when. I get it. Yeah. It, that sounds like something that would come out of like late fifties, early sixties. Yeah. Uh, so the group scored an early hit in 1958 with the song To Know Him Is To Love Him, which is, like, honestly iconic. Artists yes. still cover it yep. today. Um, one of my favorite versions is actually by Amy Winehouse, which was released after she passed away on the album Lioness Hidden Treasures. It's so good. It's so good. And then also, like, the, the fact that it's released after her passing just made it kind of all the more like sweet and sad and mm -hmm. it's it's an amazing song so if you after you're done listening listen to you can there's lots of great versions of to know him is to love him out there um, so that that song hit number one in the US and the UK which is an outstanding accomplishment especially when it's like your first real attempt at being a professional musicians. Apparently they recorded their first, uh, their first songs with like $40. Wow. Like they went to a music, like they went to, uh, I think it was gold star studios in Los Angeles and recorded for, they, I might, they must've been able to like book time in the studio or whatever. And for $40, they, they scored a number one hit. That's incredible. So after the success of that song, they appeared on the popular TV show American Bandstand. Uh, so the song was kind of, if you have never heard it, it's kind of a dreamy ballad. And the title is actually inspired by the inscription on Benjamin Spector's tombstone. So that's... Phil Spector's dad, like, so on his tombstone, it said to know him was to love him. Uh, so he took that and then worked that into this song. That's a nice tribute. Right? I, it seems like a pretty, like, wholesome start. So more music was hotly anticipated from the teddy bears, but their second single, I Don't Need You Anymore, did not generate as much success as their first hit. It only managed to scratch the top 100 at number 91. The subsequent singles after that were even less successful, and the band finally called it quits in 1959. So another story about from this point in Phil Spector's career was... Um, so the producer that helped them put together their first songs with the teddy bears, it was like an on-off switch when it came to Phil's attitude. When they were up and coming, like when they were first starting out, he was all like really excited and, and was like, 
really respectful. But then the second he got a taste of fame with that that big hit song, he um, the producer that helped him said that it was like a light switch that all of a sudden he acted like a big shot like all he got one number one song and all of a sudden he just started treating people differently like like he was running the show it's like you're a teenager kid okay well i mean it's not uncommon for yeah. like people to change like as they get successful it gets to their head and i think you know after just the first song being number one, that is pretty drastic. But as you just said, like, you're a teenager. Mm-hmm. And, like, his brain is, like, still developing. <laughs> That's true, so yeah. So I'm sure it went to his head quicker than most people mm-hmm. of adult age would. And it makes me wonder if because he got this level of success this early, if that somehow screwed him up psychologically in a way that that would lead to some of these other things that were going to be problems down the road. But the world had clearly not heard the last of Phil Spector. As the 1960s dawned, he became a proverbial one-man hit machine. He found that his talent for producing was where he really shined. Spector met independent music producers Lester Sill and Lee Hazelwood, who helped him get back to New York and work with Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, who had scored a number of top hits with acts such as The Coasters, Perry Como, and notably Elvis Presley. He got a job at, as a staff producer at Dune Records, where he produced multiple hits, and from there, his career really took off. In 1961, Spectre and Lester Sill formed their own record label called Phil Less Records, which is like a combination between Phil and Lester. But, but it doesn't look like the name Phyllis. Right? Yeah, so it's P-H-I-L-L-E-S. It's weird. Which, saying it out loud, Phil Less... It does just sound like Phyllis, mm-hmm. but it's Phil Less. Phil Less. Phil Less. Or is it Phyllis? Phyllis. Phyllis. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. It just, maybe, maybe they should have thought this over a little more before they finalized it. <laughs> uh, but that's what it was. A combination of their two first names. Uh, So they signed the girl group, The Crystals, who made numerous appearances at the top of the charts over the next several years, with hits like Uptown in 1962, which peaked at number 13, and that was quickly followed up by the number one hit, He's a Rebel, that same year. Now, with that particular number one hit, Spectre's demanding nature as a producer would begin to come clear. Spectre, who at that time was based in L.A., couldn't get the singers from the Crystals to travel from New York, where they were touring the East Coast at the time, quickly enough. So he actually recorded the song using totally different singers. Isn't that like, like, 
Why would you do that? But you'd put it, he would put it under the crystal's name. name. Yes. Isn't that so bizarre? I mean, I can kind of understand if, I mean, no. No, no, I can't. I was going to say, like, if they sound close enough, like, they could be the same person, sure. Right. And it's, I mean, I guess you could kind of get that, but apparently there was some vocal quality differences between uh, the Crystals and the, the group that actually ended up recording the song which was Darling Love and her back backing group, The Blossoms. Um, so yeah, he used Darling Love and The Blossoms to record the song, but then released the song under the Crystal's name. So the reason why he was so in such a rush to get that song recorded and out there was because he found out that... The, that singer Vicky Carr was going to release the song with Liberty Records and he wanted to get his version out first and basically undercut the hype of the Vicky Carr one, which is really sad because it, it, it said that it was going to be Vicky Carr's first single. So it's like, he, I don't know, he must have really liked this song and he didn't want anybody else to have to have it. So he had to have first dibs, which is just kind of like a maniacal thing to base it, to be screwing with. It's one thing to manage the careers of the people that you're working with, but to try and steal the thunder from other people in the industry just seems, I mean, that mean, I mean, that probably is also intentional too. Cause maybe Vicky Carr was like projected to be like the next big thing. And he couldn't have, someone else potentially stealing the spotlight. Yeah, it's weird. It's like, come on, there's room for, there's so much room in the spotlight for so many different types of acts. So the, uh, the releasing the, the song under the crystal's name was not only a disservice to Darling Love and the Blossoms, who were promised credit uh, and... Want, and they also wanted to break out as primary artists. Uh, I guess the the Blossoms had been had done a lot of backing vocals, so they were. Uh, if you think of the 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 documentary Twenty Feet from Stardom, uh, all about backup singers, you know they're doing really important work. They are basically like the icing on the cake that is every song and. Without them, you would not have the full picture that... I think a better analogy is like when you do the cake, they are actually the cake itself where the lead singer is the icing. Oh, I get You could make like, that argument. Because yeah. they support the lead singer. Right. And the, and the, the, the lead singer is the one who's out in front. Yeah. So they're kind of like the outers. Now I really want cake. I just fed you macaroons. Yeah. <laughs> Which were amazing, by the way. That is, that is on record now. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they wanted, they wanted to be... Uh, they had done a lot of backup vocals for a lot of other acts, and they were kind of prom... It's like they were dang, constantly dangling this, this shot at the big time. And here they had a hit song. Like, He's a Rebel uh, is was a number one hit and 
nobody knows that they're the ones who recorded it first, which is so disappointing. Um, so they, yeah, they wanted the credit that they deserved. Um, but the, there was also tension between Spectre and the original Crystals group, the mm -hmm. ones who were, you know, meanwhile, were still touring out on the East Coast. Uh, so they felt like they had been just replaced, which I would, I would feel the same way. So despite the commercial success of numerous songs... Uh, they were rightfully upset with being replaced on some of their biggest hit songs. And furthermore, they were even more annoyed by Spectre devoting more time to his new pet project, The Ronettes. The Ronettes even replaced The Crystals on several tracks on the 1963 compilation LP, The Crystals Sing the Greatest Hits. And disputes over royalties further damaged the relationship with Spectre. By 1964, the Crystals were done with Spectre and Phyllis Records, and they disbanded in 1967. Though they did later reunite in 1971, and some of them are even still active today. Yeah, I was going to say, I looked up the Crystals, mm -hmm. um, and I also realized that they sing one of my favorite songs from that era, which was Then He Kissed Me. Yes! I love Then He Kissed Me. I do too, and Adventures in Babysitting, the opening I was scene. gonna say, yeah, that they used that in the, the opening credits, and I think multiple movies yeah, even. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's it's such a great song. Um, yeah, I, I think that's just so crazy that it's like, okay, you've now at this point he's got three different musical acts all recording songs credited to one group but you know that it just is so it's such a weird situation where like you are just kind of shuffling around your your female singers and just lumping them all under one name and then nobody's really getting the proper credit that they deserve and so then it's like oh the original crystals are like well that's not my voice on the recording of our hit song but you know i guess i have to sing it anyway mm -hmm. and and then other other ones are like oh that's my voice but that's not my name it's just it's such a bummer um also Totally little side fact too. So in 1963, uh, he had uh, Phil Spector released this. It was a Christmas album and it was something like a, a gift from Phil Spector to you or something like that. So it was like, and I think it was another one where it was like a bunch of his girl groups singing these. It, it was kind of like a compilation album. But guess when it came out? right around the same time as the Kennedy assassination. And it, in fact, I think it was either the day of or like two days after. And he basically just decided to pull it from the shelves and it just kind of like got shelved. Hmm. But isn't that just like the worst timing? Yeah. Like, yeah, America, that is, that's not what, America wants in, in their time of mourning is uh, a gift from Phil's. Yeah. 
it was just really weird. And then I went, I was looking online. I'm like, I wonder if there are any copies of that that actually got put out there. And I, I found one online and it was like $250. So search your, search your <laughs> grandparents record collection. And if you've got, if you've got uh, a gift from Phil Spector, the original album, you might've just struck gold. All right, so by the age of 21, Spectre was a millionaire hit maker with a distinct sound earning him accolades across the music business. His signature was what became known as the wall of sound. This technique took all of the advantages of studio recording to create a lush sound using layered tracks, doubling or tripling the same part. So when I was reading up on this, uh, the best example I found was you would have an acoustic piano and an electric piano and a harpsichord, and they would all be recorded separately playing the same part. But when you mixed it together just right, it all sounded like it was one instrument and like the, the listener could not distinguish between three separate things. It was just like a like a whole, like they say, like a wall of sound where it all sounds like one thing. That's cool. It, it It's such a cool technique. And I, I think that's why, like one of the, the sounds of that era that I think is so iconic and what and why we oftentimes think of his music uh, when we think of that era. So also adding to the distinct sounds of Spectre's works uh, were the sounds of like strings and woodwinds and brass and percussion that up until that point hadn't really been used in in like youth oriented pop music. Um, so it really gave uh, a new dimension because it wasn't just the um, like the tracks it was also like he was literally introducing sounds that weren't being used in pop music um and then the kind of like the cherry on top of it was the reverb which is what i always think of as kind of like the tin can uh -huh. effect yep. that is so uh prevalent on some of that so it was uh so he would use reverb by using an echo chamber. Um, so that resulted in a sort of roar of sound that Spectre himself described as being assembled like a Wagner opera. So uh, he had his dream team of studio musicians at Gold Star Records in Los Angeles, and they're known as the Wrecking Crew. Uh, and then he also had engineer Larry Levine and arranger Jack Nietzsche. At least I think I'm gonna, I'm thinking that's how we pronounce his last name. Nietzsche? N-I-C-H-E? It's N-I-T-S-C-H-E. Nietzsche? Jack Nietzsche? Maybe? I'm gonna say Jack Nietzsche. Anyway, so he was the arranger. Um, and then what resulted not only earned them all hits, but influenced musicians throughout the decades from the Beach Boys to Bruce Springsteen. Mm, some big names. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, well, hold the thought because um, I did look up the reverb echo um, like fact. Echo chamber yes. effect. And basically what it is is the singer or singer sing into a microphone and then that microphone gets channeled to another room where it's reverberated through speakers, which is picked up by a microphone in that room. And then it's channeled back to the... Um, the track. The, yeah, like the recording studio. Okay. Um, and that's what gives it like that canny like AM radio type sound. Interesting. All right. So the 60s saw an incredible parade of acts come through the studio before Spectre's attentive ears. The Righteous Brothers found themselves with massive hits such as Unchained Melody and You've Lost That Lovin' Feeling, which anybody who's seen the movie Top Gun knows that song from that. <laughs> I've never seen Top Gun. What? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's a classic. I know. That's an 80s classic. That's what I hear, but you know what? I've Almost don't want to just because it has such a hype. <laughs> or at least watch that scene because it's like okay. they're, they're everybody, they're like in a bar and like everybody starts singing it. It's, it's kind of a cute scene. But nothing compared to the absolute magic that was created when he worked with Ike and Tina Turner on what he considered his best work yet, River Deep Mountain High. Mm-hmm. The record did very well in the UK and peaked at number three, but only reached number 88 in, on the US charts. Spectre was so devastated that his masterpiece wasn't getting the success that it deserved that he went into seclusion for two years. He actually took out a full page ad in the trade papers basically to complain about US audiences. Benedict Arnold was right, he quipped, right before dropping off the scene. <laughs> that's a, you got that's a, a level of pettiness. I was gonna say, like, that's you've so gotta appreciate. Petty. <laughs> um, and also I thought it was really interesting that uh, what Tina Turner herself said about this record was she felt it was too black for white audiences, but too white for black audiences. So that was kind of what she felt why it didn't have quite the success that they had hoped it would get here in the U.S. And honestly, that makes sense for that mm -hmm. time. Right. And I know for the, the and this was like 1966. So middle of the 60s. Um, yeah, things are still kind of tense racially. Well, <laughs> It's very tense racially. Yeah. Uh, and we hadn't, e at that point, we hadn't even seen the worst of it uh, that would happen later on in the decade. But uh, yeah, it is a phenomenal record, though. Um, but it was just a little ahead of its time, I think. Mm -hmm. In those two years when uh, Spectre was report, uh, where Spectre had kind of like dropped off the scene. It was reported, or he was reported to exhibit strange and nearly psychotic behavior, often involving his extensive handgun collection, all in conjunction with heavy drinking. Quite the recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. um, it's really kind of surprising that uh, some horrible incident 
like a fatal incident didn't happen earlier in his career. Right. Like once you see how prolific this kind of madness was. So through the end of the decade, he largely stayed reclusive. Uh, although he did make a rare TV appearance on the show I Dream of Jeannie in 1967. And apparently he, he played himself in an episode. Like, I would love to see this episode. Uh, it just sounds like what a random thing for you to, like, come out of hiding to do. Uh, and then in 1969, he also made a cameo in the film Easy Rider as a drug dealer. He also managed to coax a hit out of obscure Vegas lounge act, Sonny Charles and the Checkmates, uh, with the song Black Pearl. And that also came out in 1969. And also I think what's kind of cool about that particular hit is it's basically all about the beauty of a black woman. Awesome. Yeah, so I think that, it w again, ahead, ahead of, of his time... time uh, but I thought that was a, a neat little thing to mention in there, and especially because he wasn't very active in that time period. But And good for you, Sonny Charles and the Checkmates, plucked from, uh, from uh, obscurity to uh, get a, a, a big hit song. So the late 60s also saw a tumultuous time for Spectre's personal life as well as his professional career. He had been married to Annette Mirror, who was the lead vocalist of one of his early pop groups called The Spectre's Three since 1963. But uh, he was having an affair with Veronica Ronnie Bennett. Uh, she was later known as Ronnie Spectre who was the lead singer for his girl group, the Ronettes. Oh, okay. So he was mixing business and pleasure with mm -hmm. his girl groups. The affair put an end to his marriage to Mirror in 1966, and two years later, he wed Bennett. Um, so apparently, uh, Annette Mirror got kind of the, the easiest of the Phil Spector marriage experience. It was a very short-lived marriage. And uh, it was, I guess the, the kind of breakup was pretty easy compared to a lot of his other marriages. Okay. Uh, and she got $100,000. Which settlement. 60s. Which in the 60s, that was a chunk of change. Um, I mean, that's a chunk of change today. I can't yeah. imagine what it would have been like in... In the 1960s. Yeah. yeah. And that's, which is just wild. Um, but honestly, like, she had to put up with him. She probably deserved it. <laughs> she probably, probably deserved a lot more. Right. <laughs> so, uh, the new couple... Uh, so now we're talking about Spectre and... Um, Veronica? Yes, Veronica, who was the lead singer for the Ronettes. Um, they adopted a son in 1968, Dante Philip Spector. And then, as, as a Christmas surprise, adopted twins Louis Philip Spector and Gary Philip Spector. So, a couple of red flags here. One, 
all of the kids have Philip for middle name, which is like ego much. And two, he surprised his wife at Christmas with twin boys like they were a gift. Like they're it's not like they're not puppies. These are like human children that need love and care. If any if anything it should have been a gift to the kids that, you know, like, it's Christmas, you're getting a home. <laughs> right. You know, it's, it shouldn't be like, honey, I'm home, and, and here's I'm, your yeah. surprise children. It's very, it seems very weird. Um, I mean, I, I'm all for, like, they, like, they they can afford it. Like, they can, you know how a lot of times, like, I think of like Angelina Jolie, like she's super well off. She's a multimillionaire. She can afford to have a big family. And so she's like adopted kids from poor nations yeah. and stuff like that. And I think that's really nice to when um, people who know that they've got it good want to share that and give children who don't have a home a, a good home. Right. Because yeah. they can... They have the resources to give them everything that they could ever need or want. But then we've also seen that go the other way, too. I think of um, Christina from from Mommy Dearest. <laughs> she was adopted by Joan Crawford and, and then, of course, wrote the book oh, all about yeah, how, yes. yep, yep. how terrible her mother was. So. No more wire hangers. Yes. <laughs> Which, have you, please tell me you've seen Mommy Dearest. Yes. Okay, good. That's one of my favorite just camp movies. It's so campy. Yeah. But it sucks. So that's what's Yeah, that life. is what the childhood was like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, really weird situation there with like surprising your wife with twins at Christmas. Um, so I feel like these are all signs of someone who is very not well, not in their right mindset. Uh, and in fact, in in her 1990 tell-all memoir, Be My Baby, How I Survived Mascara, Miniskirts, and Madness, Ronnie Spector alleged that her husband had been abusive and had even held her prisoner in his mansion in California. Her career suffered she alleged because her husband forbade her from performing publicly. It was clear that his jealousy was out of control and he would even interfere with her conversations. Uh, there's an instance of he like dragged her off the floor of a, off the dance floor of a nightclub. Um, when, when she was touring with the Ronettes in the UK, he was like not about letting her leave her hotel room mm. he was just very very controlling you know and his mother was very very controlling right it makes me wonder if there's some sort of connection mm -hmm. there with that so overall her marriage ended up killing her career and you know even though he had uh, recorded a single with her that didn't really go anywhere. Um, he also used her on a on a duet with George Harrison from the Beatles on an album. 
Um, but really, besides those kind of rare moments, uh, she didn't get a chance to perform at all in the in the period when she was married hmm. to him, kind of as their marriage went on. Yeah. Um, also, in her book, she described when she was finally able to escape from the Spectre house barefoot with the help of her mother in 1972. So apparently one of the things that he would do was like, he would leave, or he would like either hide or lock up her shoes or something like that. So it just to make it less likely, I've I guess. Heard, I've heard this a lot with um, like domestic um, abductees. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you're not kidnapping a stranger off the street. It's like you're taking like your partner mm-hmm. or a child, and one way that a method that they weigh to like keep them at their at their like kind of in in their residence. Yeah, to like keep yeah. their grip on them. Yeah. is they take away their shoes because it's just people aren't comfortable going out into the world without shoes on. Right, and I I think it it's sort of one of those things that makes it complete when you when you are leaving the house and i mean they're there to protect your feet too (laughs) right so and and if you see anybody out on the street barefoot you kind of automatically think like what's going on there like why don't why doesn't this person have shoes Uh uh-huh yeah so thankfully she was finally able to obtain a divorce in 1974 but she really got the wrong, the raw end of the deal. Uh, she gave up all future record earnings on her oh. music, and she also gave him full custody of the children because she claimed that he threatened her with a hitman. So basically, he was like, "Well, I'm gonna take custody of the kids, or I'm gonna hire someone to kill you," like. How messed up is that? And she believed I, and God, I would believe him. This man who has a collection of guns, has tons of money. There, it would not be unrealistic to assume that he could find somebody to do it, and he would get off scot free because he's Phil Spector. So, like, he basically in this divorce, basically just punished her any way they could, like. I'm going to leave you broke. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to take away your biological and adopted children. Uh, they did not have any biological children together. Oh, they so only they adopted. adopted together. Okay. Yeah. Well, still, but those still, were her, those were, those her, were her kids. kids. Yeah. Oh. Um, so <laughs> to, to kind of, you know, put a bow on the, the grudge that Phil Spector held, um, he wrote, F you on every single one of his alimony checks to Ronnie. And I'm censoring myself here, trying to keep it at least somewhat PG. Uh, But he wrote the full words out on every... So could you imagine just in the 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 memo memo line line. of every alimony check? And it's like, well, I'll take your money, but it's still a way to make it unpleasant every single time. Yeah, uh, so the children also suffered. They uh, told stories about oftentimes being locked in their rooms. 
uh, and that that primarily came from Dante, um, and he also claimed that they that there were some times where uh, he described they they would simulate sex with their father's girlfriend and be blindfolded and molested. Like this just sounds so so weird. So it seems like their father was trying to use this as some kind of like, oh, let me teach you how to be with a woman. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just does not sound like it went... It, it, because it, it ended up just coming out as abuse. Yeah. Like, there's just yep. no other way to put it. Um, so, yeah, even his kids were not immune from this kind of maniacal like control and depravity and that just sucks that he got full custody yeah i tell me about it um there was a a a reference in my reading that one of his sons uh escaped i guess i think when he was 10 and like basically ran to the police and claiming that he had been that he was being abused and i think he kind of got bounced around i know at some point, some of his kids ended up living with his own mother. So, got to live with grandma. But, I, gosh, I can't imagine that must have been easy. Uh, especially with the grandma being... We know how she yeah, treated Yeah, Bill, how she so. treated her son. So, uh, there was not a whole lot about written about that, but... I can only imagine that it must have been a really tough childhood. Even if you, even with all the resources and the, like money doesn't buy st- family stability. Right. So it's strange that during this time period, so we're kind of looking at the early seventies when this abuse was going, was kind of on the rise. Um, that Spectre was once again working with some of the biggest names in music. He worked with George Harrison and John Lennon separately on solo projects, as well as the Beatles uh, as a whole. Uh, he produced the album Let It Be. Oh, wow. I know. And uh, The Long and Winding Road, that got, that was a number one hit. Uh-huh. Um, and that has got a very Phil Spector treatment to it. Um Although it's funny because I guess Paul McCartney really didn't like the have the super lush sound, and and later on um, he re-released it where he he um, despectified it, <laughs> and and so he re-released it as um, "Let It Be" naked. <laughs> Okay. And so we basically took out and like stripped it of all that kind of like layering and lush like extra stuff and uh-huh. just let it let let it be. Let yeah, it be. Yeah. Let it be as it was. Yeah, which I think I think that was kind of funny and a little bit of a screw you to Phil Spector. Yeah. <laughs> um but anyway, once again, Tensions and person and his personal behavior damaged the possibility for future collaborations, and the band chose not to work with Spectre going forward. In the seventies, he also worked with the Ramones and Leonard Cohen, although neither of these albums reached the monster success of his earlier work. A fact that always seemed to bother him where 
uh, whenever uh, his work didn't receive the attention he thought it deserved. So this is definitely somebody with an ego a, issue. Yeah, major ego issues. So Spectre in and out of the studio was unhinged. Sonny Bono, who had worked for him for a time, recalled a story when they were trying to get him on a plane to New York. Before the plane could take off, Spectre began raving like a lunatic, saying that he was not going to fly on that plane, and that everyone else on the plane were losers and that they were cursed. He made such a scene that the plane had to return to the gate, which was against all regulations. Spectre was subsequently banned from flying American Airlines ever again. So he was calling Sonny Bono of the infamous Sonny Cher <laughs> a loser. I don't know if he was necessarily calling him, but I think the, the other people on the plane he was calling losers, nobodies, basically. And I think anybody that who was not a success like him, uh, <laughs> he considered to just be like bad juju. Like mm -hmm. I it's it seemed like he he had these weird foibles around even just like the people he surrounded uh -huh. himself with. Um so he got kicked off the flight, and uh, so the the next day, Sonny sent Cher to try and rouse Spectre, who had fallen asleep at the airport gate overnight. So he so Phil Spectre spent the night at the airport, um, and so I I just love this image of Cher trying to coax this groggy very edgy person to like, okay, Phil, we've got to get you on a different plane since you can't fly American Airlines anymore. And Cher is like, she doesn't take like any like slack or like talk back from anybody. <laughs> like she's like very assertive. Right? I can imagine. I like, would love, like, I would love so much just to interview Cher and just ask her story like to tell a few stories like i want to know i want to hear her tell this story <laughs> i can like see her like phil half awake looking at her like her gorgeous long hair like, oh my gosh standing above him being like phil get up we are getting you on this delta flight because <laughs> you screwed up and got yourself kicked off american um so Cher actually proved to be like the Phil Spector whisperer in this situation. Um, so the only way she managed to get him on a plane with a, with a different airline was uh, she had a St. Christopher medal that she wore around her neck. And of course, St. Christopher is the patron saint of travelers. Um, and she gave it to him to, as, to hold on to. And she was like, it's blessed. Like, it, like, this is, uh... This will protect you. This will protect you, yeah, since apparently he thought that the last flight was cursed, which I'm sure the other plane made it to its destination uh -huh. just fine, uh, as I did not read anything else about a plane crash. Uh, but yeah, so 
Cher giving Phil Spector a St. Christopher medal that she wore was what did the trick and got him on to uh, a plane to New York. So great job, Cher. You did it. Uh, I I suppose if in another life she could have been a crisis counselor, maybe. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so that was a. I feel like that's a great example of of how he was sometimes outside of the studio, uh, but he was he was legendary for some of his in studio moments. Um, so not only was he like a perfectionist. But he was also oftentimes deranged in the studio. So Dee Dee Ramone of the band The Ramones recalled the time when Spectre pulled out a gun, like in the studio, and pointed it at his heart. He motioned for him and the rest of the band to get back into the piano room of the recording of the recording studio. He only put the gun away when he was assured that his bodyguards could keep the band members in place. Spectre then held them, held the band captive at the piano, forcing them to listen to him play and sing the song, Baby, I Love You, until well after 4.30 in the morning. Like, just the same song over and over? That's what it sounds like, and I imagine that must have been the most uncomfortable situation, like, one, your producer just held you at gunpoint and forced you into this room and you don't know what's going to happen. And then he's forcing you to listen to him play this song over and over again. I can imagine that that's what hell must be like. Mm-hmm. Um, so other artists reportedly held at gunpoint by Spectre included John Lennon, Leonard Cohen, Debbie Harry of Blondie. Oh, okay. And of course, the Ronettes lead singer and Spectre's wife for a period of time, Ronnie Bennett. So side note, uh, Spectre also wielded an axe with John Lennon when he tried to get some session tapes back. So I, I guess it's nice that he diversified weapons right i it sounds terrifying though he's i mean why were authorities not notified (laughs) it seems like somebody who should have been like put in a padded room way early Uh uh-huh like you don't go after john lennon with an axe just because he wants his tapes back Uh uh-huh uh but yeah i and that was just like the like the the most notable ones. Uh, there are so many more stories of other instances where he pulled guns well, yeah, on just regular if, people. If he's going to be doing this to huge stars like John Lennon and uh, the, Ramones, the Ramones, imagine what he did to like people that he considered to be nobodies. Yeah. There was, uh, there was another story where I guess... It was years later. Um, he was having lunch with the the woman who was the uh, lead singer of the Teddy Bear, who sang, who was the vocalist on "To Know Him Is to Love Him." Uh-huh. Uh Like so, they had they had like a nice lunch. They were catching up, and then like when they were leaving, 
Phil Spector got into some altercation with some other woman who was there and like, and he pulled a gun on this random woman who he was having an altercation with. And I, I can't imagine any situation where you would be having a nice lunch and then like maybe as you're leaving, like what, did she like bump into you? And so you, you like pulled a gun on her. Like, it's just so weird that he's so quick on the draw when uh -huh. it comes to yeah. pulling out his gun. I don't know. It's, it's very strange. In another absurd story, Spectre, who had gotten a reputation for using his hired bodyguards, not as protection, but muscle, showed up at his high school's 30th reunion and hung out mostly by himself and didn't allow anyone to talk to him for the whole evening. So here he is, he shows up for his 30th class reunion and like doesn't want to talk to anybody. I almost feels like he, that's him just saying like, look at me, I'm so important, I have my own bodyguards. Right? Uh, it That's just psychotic. It's like, and also what a waste of time. Like why would you bother showing up if you're not there to reconnect with anybody? To boost his own ego. Yeah. So he can look, so he can, you know, feel like he's better than all these other people that are working like office nine to five jobs. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> uh, so only his boyhood friend, Marshall Lieb, uh, who, if you remember, is was one of the singers in the Teddy Bears, uh -huh. um, managed to coax a few words out of him that night. Uh, so yeah, it's like, you might have talked to one person and then not even that much. And also somebody like your child, like a friend of yours from your childhood who I would think you would be so pleased to see and to, to catch up and reminisce with. And then you just like, meh, just like say like a few words to them the whole evening. It's like, how disrespectful. So throughout his career, bodyguards would be constantly getting Spectre out of trouble after he caused scenes, uh, whether in public or private settings, including his own 1989 induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, to which he showed up drunk and only made it on onto the stage with the help of his bodyguards. That's classy. Oh, yeah, that is... And, uh, uh, the description of his whole speech and everything, it just sounded like it was really rambling and really kind of nonsensical. And it just, it sounds like everyone would have been uncomfortable and probably relieved when he finally <laughs> stopped talking. <laughs> Throughout the 80s, Spectre was less active uh, he fell into a relationship with his assistant, Janice, I'm going to say Zavalos. I think we're going to go with Zavalos. I have a friend, uh, her last name is Zavala. Uh, this is has, it? is it L-O-S at the end? No, it's L-A at the end. Um, this is L-O-S at the end. So it's Zavalos. Zavalos. I know it, it's one of those names where like the emphasis changes it entirely. Mm-hmm. It's either Zavalos or Zavalos. Right. I like the sound of Zavalos, actually. We're going to go with that, I think. Uh, and he had twins with her. So these are, he's having biological children now. And those, those twins were Nicole Audrey Spector, 
and Philip Spector Jr. Of course, he had to name his biological son after himself. Uh, but sadly, Phil Jr. died of leukemia in 1991. Hmm. But this period of his life, it seemed like he was uh, more of a partner that, and a dad than at any other time in his life. He doted on his kids, and uh, the help he was getting for his manic depression must have been partially to thank for that. But the happiness would not be long-lasting. Death seemed to be a trigger for Spectre. His father's suicide, the slow decline of his friend Lenny Bruce, the assassination of his one-time collaborator John Lennon, and the passing of his songwriting friend Doc Pomus uh, weighed heavily on him. And when his son and his own namesake died at the age of nine in 1991, it was too much for him. He's split from Zavalos shortly thereafter. He moved back to New York for a while, and then in 1998, he bought a huge, dramatic eight-bedroom house called the Pyrenees Castle, which sat atop a hill in Alhambra, California, just outside of L.A. He brooded up in his house on the hill, rarely working, and estranged from most of his family, which brought him to the infamous night of February 2nd, 2003. Okay, so here we are, the night when all of Phil's internal turmoil is going to spill over. Yes, this is where everything blows up. Uh, and also, before we get into the murder, I also wanted to just briefly mention that uh, he what like so when he was rarely working as a producer still at this point apparently there is a um, a session that he did with Celine Dion and apparently it was like everyone was there like there were all of these weird like huge figures like Cato Kalin was there Penny Marshall was there like all of these like strange figures who had no like there oh um Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys was there and it was just, it just sounded like what what were all of these people doing in the same room at the same time like yeah, this like, does not like they don't match up <laughs> right. like music style wise personality style yeah, wise like level like, of fame style yeah, wise yeah i don't know what brought them all together uh but apparently nothing ever came of that um that studio time with Celine Dion, but I really want to hear what they did do. <laughs> I hope it's somewhere out there. Maybe, maybe someone could leak it. So anyway, here we are at the big night, February 2nd, 2003. So actress Lana Clarkson was far from a household name. She had been cast in several small roles most notably in Roger Corman's B-movie Barbarian Queen in the role of Amethia. But uh, she mostly played one-off parts in TV shows in the 80s and 90s. And like she was on Three's Company, she was on the A-Team, um, the Jeffersons, I believe. Like so she's like she 
was in notable TV shows. She was just playing like one-off characters. Yeah, like a couple episodes. Yeah, or just like tops. Yeah, um, and then like little roles in other movies too. Um, so when she met Spectre, she was working as a hostess in the VIP section of the House of Blues on Hollywood's Sunset Strip. That evening, February 2nd, uh, Spectre came in very late in the evening. He had had two failed dates that night and had been drinking heavily. He ended up chat. He chatted up Clarkson until the early morning hours and eventually convinced her to go home with him. When they arrived at the house, Clarkson reportedly told the driver that she was only staying for one drink and that she wouldn't be long. So he had like a, a chauffeur, which thank goodness he wasn't drinking and driving. I feel like this person, Phil Spector, like drinking would only elevate the amount of like disdain right he would cast upon the world yeah and especially after it sounded like he had two dates earlier in the evening that didn't go well it i mean and and at this this a in 2003 he would have been in his 60s he was born in 39 yeah so he was in he was in his 60s then i mean still looking for love yeah it's never too late (laughs) never too late yeah um but I imagine that having two dates and on top of the alcohol, you probably would be in kind of a sour mood, I would think. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so the chauffeur is waiting to, because eventually he's going to take this woman back to wherever, probably back to her, either her home or wherever her car is. Right. A short time later... The driver heard a shot. Spectre then staggered out, dazed, telling the driver, I think I killed someone. He was still holding the blood-covered gun at the time. Uh, When the police arrived, they found Clarkson dead in the entryway of Spectre's home. She had been shot in the mouth. Her handbag was over her shoulder, which suggested that she either was intending to leave or that she had never had the chance to set it down in the first place. Spectre insisted that the fatal shooting had been an accident. Astoundingly, Spectre was released on bail despite having a history of holding people against their will at his home, frequently using his guns as leverage. This is something that the police were aware of, and he still got out on bail. How much, did you see how much his bail was? I did not see how much it was. And can people pay their own bail? I believe so, yeah. I think so. He so. probably had the He probably yeah. had the money yeah. on hand, and, and uh, the fact that he was basically allowed to just go back to his normal life, like he would fly to New York yeah. while he was out on bail. Like, he was allowed to leave the state and and do kind of his normal life um, while out on bail. It just, it's, just doesn't seem normal. Like, no other low-level, uh, you know, everyday Joe who no. committed a crime would 
ever get that kind of leeway. You would you would think and hope, um, but I, it's another uh, point where fame really does wonders for your for making life easier for you in some instances. Mm-hmm. So Spectre's defense was really was despicable. They tried to frame Clarkson as a depressed, washed-up actress who committed suicide in Spectre's foyer as some kind of grand gesture. But in reality, she had worked steadily up until 2001 when an accident left her with two broken wrists that disrupted her career. Spectre managed to drag his feet for years, causing plenty of drama as he hired and fired lawyers. Even amidst this legal tempest that swirled around him, he managed to meet and marry 26-year-old Rochelle Short, who was an outspoken defender of her new husband's innocence. So even though it's pretty much established that he shot this woman, he and like three years after that, he meets this woman who is... A way, third way. of his age? Yeah, a third of his age, because he's getting into his, like, mid-60s now at mm-hmm. this point. Um, marrying a 26-year-old. It. I'm not saying that love can't be found between that, but it raises an eyebrow. It makes it, you think she's a gold digger. And I think it's very interesting, too, that he produced a record for her, too. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a little... A little convenient for her. Um, but she stood by him through this whole legal mess. And she knew what she was getting into. Like, she knew that all this legal stuff was happening at the time when she met him. So the trial didn't happen until 2007. So four years later? Yeah, four years after Clarkson's death. Which is just... like it's an abomination like when they say that everybody has the right to a fair and speedy trial four years after someone's death is just so much can happen in that amount of time like I think that's a huge miscarriage of justice that it was allowed to be delayed that long and meanwhile Phil Spector is is still allowed to live his own life. He's allowed to go home to his own home at the end of the day. Like Yeah, it's like it's one thing when they're gathering evidence that mm-hmm. slows it down and during that time the person is still behind bars cuz you know everyday people while they're awaiting their trial, mm-hmm. they are behind bars. Typically, I mean, un- unless you can afford bail, which bail is oftentimes unattainable for right. a, every, a lot of everyday people. And it's it's meant to be a deterrent so that you don't yep. flee. Yeah. So that's just that just goes to show you if you have money and you have a well known last name. Yeah. It can take you, you places. It can't yeah. It can it can buy you a few more years of freedom. Um so the in so in this two thousand seven trial, uh six women actually testified to being held at gunpoint at Spectre's house when they tried to leave. So here are six other women who probably went through the same terrifying experience that Clarkson 
experience before she died. Uh, so that is definitely establishing a pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, but this trial ended, uh, it was an, a mistrial after the jury could not come to a unanimous decision. And then they had to start the whole thing all over again. Uh, the second trial ended in a guilty verdict. And in April of 2009, he was sentenced to 19 years to life in prison. So in 2009, he was about 70 years old. So 19 years to life is probably going to be the rest of your life. I mean, if, if he serves until he's 89. Mm -hmm. I mean, but how many times do we see that he'll be sentenced, you know, 19 years of life, but he's out in seven. Yeah, or, like, there's some sort of loophole or, like, good behavior or whatever. Um, But that was 2000... That was 2009. Nine. Yeah. So it would be 11 years later now? Wow. Yeah. 11 going on 12. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. That's crazy to think. And he's still... Well, here, we'll, we'll okay. see, we'll right. see uh, how this wraps up here. So while in prison, his wife took over his affairs, but then he divorced her from prison in 2016, claiming that she was spending too much money. Oh. Again, even from prison, he couldn't stand not being in control. Mm-hmm. That's what I really feel. Yep. Um, but publicly, the, they said uh, it was because of, that they split because of irreconcilable differences. You know, that has nothing to do with the fact that he murdered somebody or or because of money. It's just, we just couldn't see eye to eye anymore. I wanted beige carpet. He wanted <laughs> satin colored carpet. And because I, I spent more money on the beige, he didn't. He couldn't take it. Spectre spent his 70s between North Kern State Prison and a medical facility in Stockton, California, as his health declined. On December 31st, 2020, he was taken to San Joaquin General Hospital in French Camp, California, and intubated because of complications from COVID-19. A few weeks later, on January 16th, 2021, Phil Spector, at the age of 81, died from COVID-19 complications. All of his money and fame could not save him in the end from illness and his greatest fear of death. So isn't that crazy? Like, when you think about all, like, that there are some big names, people who died from COVID-19. Phil Spector, one of the most famous music producers out there, not immune to it uh it, right. you know he he died in a hospital probably struggling to breathe probably uh, well, alone yeah probably not in a not in any kind of comfortable situation mm-hmm. um which is kind of a an ironic kind of twist of fate where it's like wow you you had the world wrapped around your finger at one point. You had the music world at your feet. 
and like, here you are, like, and he probably wouldn't have have gotten COVID if he wasn't in prison, right? Because it ran rampant. Yeah, so, like it's in still the prison running sa- system. Yeah, the prison system. So, so he suffered the consequences, kind of like unintentionally mm-hmm. here at the end of his life. So it's hard to say why Phil Spector acted the way he did throughout his life. He was a perfectionist. He was jealous. He obsessed over his looks and perhaps suffered a bit of a Napoleon complex. He most certainly suffered from mental illness, exacerbated by childhood traumas and the deaths of others along the way. He never learned to healthily process his emotions and sadly, those closest to him suffered greatly for it. If there is one thing that the life of Phil Spector can stand for, it is a cautionary tale of what fame and fortune can do to an unstable mind that isn't ready to handle the pressures of success and the inevitable lows. So that's where I'm going to leave it with the roller coaster of a life that Phil Spector had. Yeah. Um, well said, like, as you mentioned earlier, there was, like, so many things we could have talked about. Mm-hmm. And because you did only mention the um, the biggest names and the biggest, like, slaps in the faces that he did, I again, I wonder just how many... Oh, man. Yeah, there were... Um, there were so many incidents, and I'm like... I could keep going here. I could keep <laughs> digging. Right. It really makes me want to read more on his life. I mean, I mean especially because I I think the more sensational things uh, would be really uh, entertaining, if nothing else, um, to just see like, wow, he pulled a gun on how many people and, and like well known people. And who did he do this to? Like, yeah. So I'm, as much as, like, I'm interested in all about Phil and his shenanigans, Mm -hmm. I want to know more about Lana Clarkson. Right, yeah. I want to find all of her film roles and stuff like that. Like, that also, I just also want to know who she was. Yeah. Because I feel like if you look up her murder, it's going to mention that she was shot by by Phil, Mm -hmm. but I feel like just because Phil was at you know, so well-known and such, like, a big celebrity within that industry, mm-hmm. I feel like every article is going to, like, redirect back to Phil. Right, which is disappointing because, you know, even though she wasn't a big-name actress, like, she was a working actress. And, and also she was a person. Yeah, like, like, a, like a real like she, individual. Her yeah. story matters. I mm-hmm. want to know, like, how she got there. Yeah. But... So maybe we'll have to do, like, a part two and see what we can find and dig up more information on her. Yeah. So maybe I'll do like a little mini follow-up. Yeah, mini follow-ups I, are good. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, it would be really interesting to find out more about her as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I definitely want to mention my sources. Uh, there was, of course, the New York Times obituary by William Grimes. Uh, an article on biography.com the uh, US Sun and that had a lot of information about his 
wives over the years and his children. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Chicago Tribune article, uh, Spectre, to know him is to flee him. Uh, from, And that article is from April 17th, 1989. I by, like that title. Right? It's good. Uh, and that was by Lynn Van Matra. Matra? I'm having a hard time with name pronunciations today. It's okay. <laughs> uh, New York Magazine's obit uh, by w- Bill Wyman and uh, IMDb.com. And then my fa- one of my favorite articles was a mental floss article called Five Artists Reportedly Held at Gunpoint by Phil Spector <laughs> by <laughs> Bill DeMaine. Five of the how many? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so some really fun, interesting sources there. Um, yeah, this was such a, an interesting topic, so I, I will definitely have to talk this up with, with Blake when I see him next, because I, I just found way more than I could have even imagined. Right. There's entire books devoted to this, this crazy roller coaster of a life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yeah, I, I will have to do a a little follow up on this one. There's just so, so much. Well, I look forward to that. Yes. Um, but yeah, thanks for sharing the story. Um, and I just, I just had a thought right now, as much as like we kind of laughed and joked about Phil throughout mm-hmm. this episode, um, mental health is a serious issue. Absolutely. We made light of Phil because he was just a terrible person. Mm-hmm. And he was outrageous yeah and his antics were just things you you see in a movie right yeah he was just yeah that's the best way to put it like he was like movie quality over the top Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day Mm -hmm. i think we can both agree he had some mental illness going on and we personally just want to say like Mental health is important. So Absolutely. Even if we made light of this, this certain person's yes. uh, incidents, uh, mental health matters, and mm-hmm. so, just wanted to note that. Yeah. No, that's a that's important to mention, because um, it can be kind of a a fine line when it's like you're trying to make a point, but then also like, kind of take the edge off uh-huh. the terribleness right. of it. Yeah. yeah. I feel like it's a, it's a fine line to tread. So I hope that we, we walk that line well enough just because he is, uh, such a big public figure who is really well known for his basically antics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, but at the heart of it too, there were just a lot of people who were really, hurt by you know not only just physically with the murder but um a lot of people emotionally yeah his wife his wives uh his children um those are the real are also very real victims so it was more uh more about um more than just about murder this episode it was also about uh escaping from an abusive figure in a lot of these people's lives. Right. Yeah. So. 
right, well, very, well, thank you very much for listening. Yeah. Um, thank you for coming back for another week. Yes. Uh, what is this? Was this 24? 24. Come back next week for our big 25th 20 episode. 25th. I already have some ideas cooked up yeah, for, for a big 25. I feel it's like... It's all yours, this next one. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to see what you pick for our little landmark episode. It's, it's narrowed down to two. Okay. Two really big, juicy ones. All right. Well, you'll just have to wait until next week. So until then, bye. bye.